Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode of the podcast, we talk with Lindy Rideout. Lindy is a self-trained cooper who lives in Cottlesville, New World Island, Newfoundland and Labrador. Using his grandfather's cooperage tools, he has made barrels, water buckets, and even a wooden hot tub. A third-generation boat builder who builds kayaks, he has also taken up painting and has tried to capture the work of barrel making, including the tools, process, and people. Hi, Lindy, and welcome to the show. Oh, it's nice to be here. So just to start off, I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your background and your history and kind of your interest in barrel making and, and how that all came about. Okay, well, my grandfather and my well, grandmother, uh, the story of her was more important to me because my grandfather was dead long before my time and my grandmother as well. But she was left, a story was that she was left with 90 barrels when my grandfather passed away that they had made. And that's what she filled with fish and sustained herself through the first few years when there was pretty lean times, I imagine, in, the, in Newfoundland back in the, in the 40s and 30s. So uh, barrel making history was passed down through uh, my generations. Uh, I, I knew there were barrels around. I knew that the stage that we, the barrels were made in existed. I saw some of the equipment. It didn't mean much to me because I was uh, I was young. But anyway, I go uh, in a small town like most people do. I go off to university and I study engineering and applied mathematics. And I said, well, that's uh, some interesting concepts that I could apply back to what a barrel must have been like. And I just got fascinated by it. So asking my dad, and then asking, he's, well, I don't remember much of it because he was very young when his dad passed away. So I remember the tools. So there was this full generation gap in between. I started asking some of the seniors, which I always thought, thought were fascinating people. What was this barrel thing? Like, uh, I see so many pictures. Our town was, I discovered our town was founded by a barrel maker. And it was because there was a lot of uh, hoops, uh, trees that made good hoops. And the wood was good for barrel making. It was next to the fishery. So barrel making was just a part of the culture. But it was so far distant in the past, even though it was only 30, 40 years, that no one remembered uh, how they were made. So I thought that was uh, sad, really. So, you know, you, you live life, you do all the things you got to do. I said, when I retire, uh, I want to start making barrels. So that's what I tried to do. And what community did you grow up in or, or are you currently living in? I'm still living in the town where I was born, uh, Cottlesville. It's on New World Autumn, which is the autumn just before Twillingate Autumn. And that connection, we're connected by a causeway now, but in the past, when I researched in barrels, Twenty-Gate was a big fishing port and shipping fish all over the world, stored in barrels, especially herring uh, and other flagics like that. Even uh, codfish were stored in barrels. So you had to have the container to sell the fish. So Twenty-Gate was the fishing capital of the area. And so was Exploits Autumn, which, was, which I can see from here. And because they needed a place to make barrels, this town was formed. Wow. So the, the, I guess the basis of the community is all around barrel making. Yeah. And there's not a barrel in town. There's one gentleman's kept one uh, that he's, he's over the years and he still has it. That's, I've got it, measured it, admired it, but only from old pictures can I see that this was a big part of our, our heritage, our culture. And I thought that was sad that the, that didn't exist anymore. So I did whatever research I could, some at Mon, uh, and then over years I've kept asking what are these where do you get the tools how do you make this stuff very difficult to get information i know i met a guy uh he was a senior he was uh, long retired probably in his early 70s 
when he started explaining to me how barrels are made, it really caught my interest in town. He got uh, sick and eventually passed away. I didn't ever make a barrel with him, but he did uh, show me a few of the tips. A few years later, I met a guy from Twillingate who did the same, 20 years past now, uh, who had made barrels as a boy. He could remember he wasn't responsible for them. He was just working there. And he remembered some of the things that a couple of tools that uh, I needed. And so he said, well, let's just make a few. So we did. And he showed me how to make uh, barrels. And I thought that was the coolest thing that you could make a watertight uh, instrument based on just the local wood and materials that you could collect around the town. So a barrel is a fascinating thing. See how each joint was made and how it would fit together and from nothing created something. So it's a, it's pretty um, amazing that for no cost, because he didn't have money, they had to use whatever resources they could and that was what this town was for and we, we shouldn't forget it and can you talk me through kind of the process of making a barrel of kind of just from how you go about getting the wood to make a barrel and, and how what the process is to make a full barrel from start to finish i guess it's not that complicated it's made from well three different uh, pieces that have to be joined together or types of pieces so you have the staves which are the curved up and down pieces on a barrel the sides of a barrel if you want they're made from our local spruce and burr um, or fur, they would call it, and they would be quarter sawed and with a, a pit saw brought to the shops, to their stages, to their uh, sheds, wherever they were making barrels, because it was some, an industry, a cottage industry, everyone did. It wasn't just one big factory making barrels. It was everybody had to, to make their own or would make some and sell for extra money. And they would uh, slice those into uh, pieces with 30 inches, 32 inches long uh, was the most common for, for this town's production. And they would have to be planed and beveled to the shape that were needed for a barrel. The head then was the second part. So the two flat boards or three flat boards would have to be doweled together to make the top and the bottom of a barrel. And then the third component was a metal or well, even earlier times was made from wood, but it was the hoop. The hoop was, was usually four sometimes six, depending on how much pressure it was on or how long they wanted the barrel last without uh, expanding. And the more curved barrels, there were six hoops, metal, sometimes flat pieces of metal that wrapped around. They were also beveled a little because the barrel is not straight up and down. It's, well, the barrel shape is thicker, wider in the middle and narrower on the top and bottom. So that's the three things, so the staves, the head, and the hoops. So the process of making that was to get those three pieces ready and then have your uh, you know, a couple of months in your shop, just whittling each piece down to make it fit. And you mentioned the different sizes of wood. So would people traditionally go to like a sawmill or would they mill the wood themselves? Do you know kind of the history behind actually getting the pieces of wood to make the barrels? Well, this old area was also known for shipbuilding. So part of the process of building a ship was to look for the particular shape pieces you wanted because most wood wasn't shaped after it was naturally formed. And on the hills, trees grow out, and then they grow towards the sun, so they have curves, so surrounded by hilly terrain. So the, the carpenter, who was sometimes a cooper and sometimes a boat builder, would go in and harvest the full tree, which one man couldn't handle, but then they would use a pit saw. A couple of people, they would saw the pieces from that tree that they needed for the prime piece was taken for timbers or planks on the boat. Shorter pieces that were left over that couldn't be used for whatever reason, they didn't fit perfect for making barrels because they were only 32 inches and they're easy for a, a person to carry a tree that was whatever size we grow here because they're not big trees 
they could easily handle one of those and bring it home. So one one piece of tree trunk could easily make a barrel and sometimes two. I really like how it kind of tied into, you mentioned if you were making a boat, then you could also get your wood at the same time. So I really like how the process kind of tied into other things that people were already doing. I guess I should mention that one of the reasons that we're talking about um, coopering or making barrels is Heritage NL has done this craft at risk list and barrel making or coopering is uh, is listed on that list as endangered. And it's one of the ones that we don't know a whole lot of people who are, are doing it across the province. And so it's really great to, to chat with you today about it and about your experience kind of learning it and and practicing it. Do you have any any tips as somebody who I guess started out not knowing really kind of anything about barrels and and learning how to make one yourself? Do you have any tips for anybody who who might want to try and make it themselves? There's some specialized tools that you need. The ancient tools that were used for thousands of years, barrels have been made. This is not new to even Newfoundland. It's not it didn't originate here. But you had to have some special tools. Uh, Driving hoops were important planers of different shapes, not flat planes, because there's no flat places on a barrel. They're all curved. So each plane had to be designed and built for the curve of the barrel you needed. So you had to collect the right tools to to actually make a barrel. But the thing about a barrel making and advice I'd give to anyone was find someone who's got those tools and and you can buy them online. You can buy them some of the specialty shops too, I think, still. Or they they could be machined. But uh, finding an old one, even if it's rusted or broken, and re-engineering it and fixing it would be important. Yeah, it's important that they realize that you're not going to get it right the first time because these people did it for years and years and years. And a craftsman, when he was an apprentice, he couldn't make barrels as good as he could when he was a master barrel maker. So don't expect to make the perfect barrel the first time. I think I've made 30, uh, and each one was better than the one before, but it's still not great. They wouldn't uh, pass my grandfather's inspection, I'm sure. So it's something you could do, but don't expect to be able to do it well without practice. It is a skill that needs to be practiced. It's an art form, really. Just taking some little pieces of scrap wood, and that's what it was, and making a watertight, useful container. Everyone should try it. Everyone should see that process. And we should be proud of how that was part of our heritage. You know, we got by because we learned and we uh, passed on that skill. And so you mentioned uh, that you do happen to have some of your grandfather's tools. I know you mentioned a certain type of saw. Can you walk us through, I guess, the hand tools that you have that were your grandfather's? Okay, well, the, the wood mallet was was important, and so was the, um, the hammer. That was the, the wedged hammer was part of how they would bend the flat boards together for the sides to make it into the barrel shape. Because barrel is based on compression. There's no nails, there's no glue. So just the hoops that keeps it together. If the wood is pressing one way, the hoop's pressing the other, the staves and the hoops would fight against each other, basically, and hold the tension, and the, the whole thing stays together. It's really just a jigsaw puzzle. So the tools that you needed are a plane that would be curved plane, which is, well, it's, it's, it's only called a stave plane. It's the only name I know for it. And that tapers the edges, uh, makes the barrel narrow on the top, which gives it that curve in the middle. You need spoke shivs for rounding off some of the corners. And you needed saws and the anvil would be useful because it was for making the, the hoops. They were made from metal. They had to be hammered into shape to bevel and they had to be riveted together, uh, each one to fit the barrel. So you had a blacksmith type of uh, tools. That was most of all. You also needed a uh, compass, a protractor, sorry, with the, so you could divide off. They called it a divider. I don't what modern name they're using, but it's a, the divider was a an instrument that would measure the distance, you open and closing it. It was used in the boat building industry just as well. The, the, the craftsmen there used the same tools because they had bevels. Every boat wasn't flat. Things were curved and rounded. They needed to have to be, the planks had to be bent or hollowed. They had to be put under tension. 
So it's not that different of a trade and much the same similar tools are slightly adapted ones. So the stave maker, the driving hoops were important. So once you put all the staves together, they wouldn't stay together until they were uh, under compression on the top and the bottom. So there was a series of hoops called the driving hoops and they were metal. They were forged in England. They were concentric circles. They would fit inside of each other. And they would, the bigger one would be used first. And then you would, you force that one down around the, the barrel, hammering it down slowly, keeping everything straight, bringing it together under tension. Sometimes then that would, wouldn't want to go any further. So they had to be steamed or, or fired. That was part of barrel making too. Lighting a fire inside it to get the, the, the pores to open and the cells to be more flexible so you could bend the wood. Then there would be the next smaller hoop that would be driven down over the top. And then the, the biggest one could be removed. So they were concentric circles. So if you could imagine three circles inside of each other, just a tiny bit smaller, and there, each one was a wedge uh, on its profile, that it would be drive, driven down over the top of a barrel and would bring the, the top of the barrel's edges all together. Then it would be turned over and the same thing done on the bottom. So it was a, that's another tool would be the, the driving hoops. They were the diff, most difficult to find. They're just rusty pieces of iron. I've seen them around, never knew what they were as a kid. And then even as an adult, I didn't know what these things were. We probably threw them away as kids. You find them in the old stages and they were just a rusty piece of iron, you threw them away. But they had a very specific part in the process of making a, a barrel. Because wenching those in usually 13 or 14 staves together, bending 13 or 14 pieces of wood at one time took a lot of pressure. So these hoops were designed to help with that. Another thing you needed was, uh, now we, I use a, a ratchet straps now. They're quite useful. They weren't, they're a modern adaptation of an old Cooper tool and they use them on boats too, which was a twister. So it was just a block of wood with a rope through it. And then there was a sort of like a, a bench, a bench vice would be. So you just crank the handle around, it would tighten this rope, tighten it, twist it until the, the parts of the barrel move close enough together you could get another smaller hoop over it. So putting hoops over the top was really the steps. You get a smaller hoop and now you could let the wood relax. Sometimes the barrel wasn't made in a day. It was made over several days, letting the wood uh, bend slowly. So the driving hoops, the twister or ratchet straps are up and bring the, the wood closer together and, and squeeze them tighter. The stave planer. And there were a bunch of little router tools that we would call them now, but they were a block of wood with a, usually a nail that had been converted into uh, a tiny planer. Because on every barrel stave, the, the head must fit into a notch. So to make that notch, there were specialty tools made for gouging around the, the head, which is top and bottom of the barrel, so that the head would fit in nicely into a place and be watertight. So that's about it. It wasn't a lot of equipment. They didn't need a lot of things. They didn't have many things. The one thing if you came to this country with was a set of driving hoops, you could make everything else. And my grandfather, I think, made all the rest of the tools except for driving hoops. They have a foundry mark on them where they were founded in England, forge and foundry over there. So that was a specialty piece that had to be imported. I don't know for them being made in this province. But if you came on a ship and you, you brought a set of hoops, you had a job. I really enjoy how some of the, the different skills that you mentioned really overlap with other kind of crafts. Uh, you mentioned kind of heating the, the barrels that it would bend. And that's certainly something that we've talked about with people who make snowshoes, you know, heating the wood so that you can get that nice bend and actually make a, a, a snowshoe, make it kind of more of a circular type shape. And then, of course, when you mentioned 
blacksmithing or, or actually, you know, shaping those metal hoops. It's really interesting how the different crafts kind of overlap and, and the different skills were, were necessary. And, and of course, you mentioned boat building kind of right off the top. So it's really interesting just to see how the different tools were used and how people were able to, with a small amount of tools, uh, you know, make pretty well everything that they needed. That's the resourcefulness of the, the culture that we came from. And that's what I'm so proud of. And, and that's something that we need to cherish and, and to uh, keep the next generation uh, involved. But now, right now, practically, what is the reason for a barrel? None. Because we can go to Walmart and buy a plastic bag. We can go to the hardware store and pick a plastic bucket. And it would hold the fish, it would hold the water. You know, rain barrel, it was for apples, it was for your potatoes, it was for everything was held in, in uh, barrels at one time. But now we don't need them. So the skill is not uh, being passed on because there's no need for that product to be made in an inefficient way. It's different though that it was made as we made in some other country and shipped to here when we did all that one time ourselves. So I think that's part of why it's disappearing because there's really no, we can replace it with a more modern invention. So does that mean it wasn't important? No, I think the skills are still transferable. We talked about from blacksmith to boat building to barrel making. If you could do one, you were probably pretty crafty and pretty useful in the other trades. So it's uh, it's still the skill of it is is certainly transferable to all kinds of of modern industries. Now you, you see the TV shows, Borders in Fire. We are fascinated by the ancient way of doing things, but the product can still be the same. You can go buy a knife at the store, but it's not the same as making one and knowing where it came from and knowing its history and passing on the history of that artisan skill. That's I think is what's important. Not that you can't buy it anymore, so we shouldn't do it. We should still do it. We should still make barrels. And I think one thing that you mentioned was that at one point you were hoping to teach your son the basics as well. Um, is that still something that you're you're hoping to do or, or, or looking to pass on? Uh, he's not ready, he said. Uh, uh, too many other things to do. He's raising a family yourself. I, I understand that the generation has no need for it because it's only a luxury now to have to do it. It's a thing you do for pleasure. Uh, it's not for profit. It was necessary when my grandfather did it. You do not sell fish if you do not have a barrel. Put it in. You can't take it to the to the ship and have it hoisted aboard when the schooners would come in and, and collect all the, the fish to take to Europe or to the Caribbean. So there was, was no choice. They had to do it in order to, to have their job. It was part of their job description, in a sense, was to make their own barrels. So right now, the new generation don't see that need because we don't need them to do those things. We can go and buy a plastic barrel. We can go and buy containers for carrying things. We don't need to. But that's kind of, that's a sad uh, scenario, but it's true. And the boat building industry has changed too. I'm also a boat builder, third generation boat builder from my grandfather who built schooners for Labrador, right where I'm looking at through my window now was one of his, uh, one of his places too. Uh, my father built long liners and speedboats and I built sea kayaks. I built over 600 of them. And the skills that I was thinking of when I built that, when I realized that it was born in you to want to create, I thought it was in everyone, but it was certainly in me to see all these boats being formed from just trees that, you know, saw very little value to most people, but to some of the craftsmen, they had a mark for years, watching them grow, getting them ready for the size. And I always thought that was fascinating. So when I got into boat building, I'm retired now, but when I did, I own my own, uh, shop and I built uh, sea kayaks that I really had appreciation for how they they knew a lot of stuff I wish I knew they're very clever people not everyone's ready yet the generation may not be 
does mean it maybe not going gone long enough or they haven't realized that something becoming extinct uh, after a generation or if I'm gone, who's left to pass it on? There's no one that I can find in our area that makes barrels anymore within driving distance for me. And I've been trying to find someone. The two people that I knew were very old that when they showed me what they could and, and they're gone. I'm not sure if anyone has picked up the, the desire to start. So with that, I was thinking, you know, well, barrel making can be done in a much more efficient way. Barrel making in Newfoundland was always made, was before time of electricity. So you didn't have power tools. They didn't have chainsaws. They didn't have, you know, even modern lighting. So barrel making was restricted to daylight hours. It was restricted to what you could do by hand and how far you could carry a piece of wood. When you can go to the hardware store and pick up wood already uh, shaped, or you can go into a, a local sawmill and say, I want you to, to take this tree and cut it up for me. That makes it so much easier. And then using the power tools to shape it, power electric planers, compared to uh, 15 minutes with one Dave and manual power, I can see why uh, it wouldn't be attractive to uh, everyone to want to do. So I think there is a, a future in barrel making, but I think we're going to have to modernize with it in a sense. The final product can be the same. It can be a local product made from local um, materials, but the process in between can be simplified, made less um, manually intense if we use some electric tools and uh, replace some of the processes. But with that said, you still need to know how it was done in, in the ancient world uh, and in Newfoundland 500 years ago and for 500 years before that all through the world. And so you talked a little bit about the modern tools and, and what you would use to make those. So have you used kind of traditional methods and then also modern methods or, or how have you gone about making one yourself? Well, I've mixed, it's a hybrid. It's a mixture of power tools and, and manual tools. Some of these things were hard to duplicate and I've been studying and designing a setup where I could use all power tools. And I find that difficult because you still got to go back to some of the eyeballing and and, uh, and fitting that that came with and then tiny adjustments that a hand plane could do better than an electric plane for example so i've used both i've used traditional method with a twister which was made with marlin rope and so the ropes back of, of 100 years ago were not very strong they were made from hemp and they were they were steamed hard they were brittle and and they didn't they weren't nearly as strong modern nylon for example replaced the twister that uh, we had with a it just changed the rope and made it into a nylon rope. It was far superior to what our ancestors had to work with. I'm sure they would have too if they could have gotten the materials, but they didn't have that. So just the simple changes to modernize it, I think, is not such a bad thing. Knowing, but keeping in mind this, realizing this is so much easier than what my grandfather had to do when he had to make his own snowshoes to go into the woods to cut the tree and to bring it uh, on his back or pit salt and bring in only pieces and make this barrel with no electricity, no lights, and no power tools. So uh, having appreciation for the old way and having an adapt adaptive uh, eye for things that we can make it the same process, just you know, less energy, manual energy. I think that that um, mixture, that hybrid way of doing it, might be uh, uh, the only future for it. And is there anything about barrel making that um, I haven't asked about or that you think that people should know? The barrel was rounded. So people may not realize that flat on both ends. So it would sit up on a, on the deck of a boat and it would, you know, the boat would be moving. So it was a container that was designed to be transported on a moving uh, vessel. So the, the barrel 
that you could tip the barrel on the side and it was easy to pivot. You could turn it and roll it to wherever you wanted to be so it didn't have to be lifted. And then uh, grapples could be used on both ends to uh, lift it off the boat onto a dock and then someone on the other side could roll it to where they wanted. So the shape of a barrel is a part of our maritime history too. It was perfectly designed for being carried on a ship. That's just another one of the features of a barrel. And there were barrels of all different grades. So you had a barrel that you could look on through it. It was just uh, lots of holes in it, which was perfect for potatoes, good for apples. And that was our storage container we'd have in our, our cellars. And that was one grade. And then, so basically a beginner could make those. Then they became fish barrels, the, the punching tubs. So they were another, they had to be pretty much watertight, but because so much salt was used and they were allowed to leak because they were usually sitting on a wharf or they were sitting on a, in a stage somewhere, allowed to leak a little bit at the beginning. Then the second grade airing barrel, which is what this town was, we made most of them all for the same pickling uh, fish and storing them in these barrels and shipping them around the world. They were pretty well designed and it took some skill to make them so they're quite a bit of improvement from the apple barrel so that's a different grade and they would become watertight as after they expanded so when the when the wood was dry fit it together tight and then when you put soak it in water or you fill it with water and salt the salt and the water and the fish and whatever would start to leak out after a couple of days they would add a little more water a little more salt and more fish and then they would press them down that would fill the seams. The wood would expand and make the barrel clam up, was the term, just like a, a wooden boat would. It would probably leak when it hit the water the first few days. And they would often sink pumps and, and dories and, and boats for the first few days just to make them, the wood expand. And then they would pump the water out. And barrels were, were no different. Sometimes they were made and thrown overboard. That was part of the process. So the middle uh, grade barrel, which is what Newfoundlanders barrels are most commonly known for, uh, the middle grade, they only lasted five, to 10 years and they would rot away or pieces would break and they'd be thrown out. They weren't considered of a lot of value uh, in terms of dollars and they would just be replaced. But the third grade of barrel that um, people know about is the whiskey barrel or the wine barrel. It was made from much thicker wood so there was more surfaces to contact so the joints were uh, less likely to leak. They were made with very very uh, precise joinery and because you didn't want full 45 gallons of of wine to be leaking out or whiskey. So the more expensive materials went in there, more expensive barrels had to be made and more skillfully made. So that's three grades of barrels that were, were being used. Now in the middle one that we talked about was the, the fish barrel. There were a couple of sizes of those. There was the 30 gallon, there was the 15, there was the 40 and the 50 gallons. But it was also the punchins. So the punchin was another container. You couldn't just go to Walmart or order it on Amazon Prime uh, if you were fishing in Newfoundland in the 1890s, that's when my grandfather was born, you couldn't just order a container to wash your fish in up on the, on the wharf. So they had to make a punchin. So a punchin is half a barrel. And they were usually much bigger. They would be filled with water. Sometimes they leaked a little at the beginning, but it didn't really matter because the water was just being uh, changed every hour or so. So the fish would be cleaned uh, on the, or spit on the table on the wharf, and then the barrel was used as a, um, a wash container. So you soak the fish, wash it there, clean off any blood or, or anything that wasn't supposed to be, and tip the punching tub over, which is half a barrel. And what the same technology was used to make that one is the one uh, of the full-size barrel. The other thing that we, we did was a medicinal purpose of these barrels. 
the cod liver oil industry was always another little extra you could make if you kept the livers from either shark or from from cod and put them in a barrel left that in the sun for all summer the oils would separate from the livers and would float to the top and they would be skinned off. Now the cod liver oil, there's I guess omega threes that that kept uh, uh, us alive. Had to have a barrel to, to be fermented in. So the, the barrel had a, a bunch of uses. They were also used for rain barrels. So the half barrels were used, and the buckets were smaller. They were in every boat. Uh, so you want to you know pull up a bucket of water over the side. So that's what every boat had. You didn't have plastic or metal barrels. You had or buckets, sorry. You had to make your own, and they were made with the same technology. You use the staves and one bottom instead of a, a bottom and top barrels. It's, they're just beautiful uh, instrument. They're a piece of art, and they're a functional piece of art. Thank you so much again for talking with me. Okay, nice talking to you, Tara. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.